Okay, I wanna make a quick announcement before we get started here today. I am going to be speaking live. I am a featured speaker at this year's Flip Hacking Live. If you don't know about Flip Hacking Live, it is the absolute mecca of real estate events each year. It is a premier event. You will learn more at this event than you have learned at any other event all of them combined, I would predict, honestly. It is so amazing and packed with real learning, real knowledge, uh, experts in the industry giving away all their secrets to help you create a better business for yourself, to grow your business, or even to launch your business. I'm telling you, there's no better use of your time at any event than Flip Hacking Live. And this year, it's taking place on October 14th through the 16th, and it is in Orlando, Florida, and it's a live, in-person event. All of the COVID protocols are going to be observed, so if you're nervous about that, don't worry. They're not gonna pack you in like sardines. There's plenty of spacing. Uh, Face masks, obviously, are encouraged, and it is as safe as humanly possible, but I'm telling you, this is the event you need to go to. I am speaking at this event, and my talk alone, I think, is worth the price of admission. It's very, very inexpensive. Guys, you really owe it to yourself to go check this out. If you want to learn more, go to bestrealestateevent.com. That's bestrealestateevent.com. Go check it out. Go grab your tickets. I'll be there. I would love to talk to you in person and sit down and spend a little time, but I can't do that if you're not there. So go check it out. Get your tickets now. Can't wait to see you. But don't think of yourself as a woman in real estate. Think of yourself as a real estate investor and act like a real estate investor and act like you belong there because you do. And so if I'm a work, woman working in this industry, just do it. Like, Don't let that hold you back or make you second guess yourself. Just do it. And if somebody can't wrap their brain around working with you, don't work with them. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me here on the show. I appreciate it. I am super psyched. I've got so much going on in my business and I am just uh, just crazy with excitement about everything I have going on. I'm going to be speaking at Flip Hacking Live again this year. If you don't know about it, you should go check it out. You can go to Best realestateevent.com. That's bestrealestateevent.com. And you can get all the answers to all your questions about that event. It's going to be amazing. If you have an opportunity to go, you really should go grab your tickets and be there because it's the best real estate event in the country for the entire year. I really, really, truly believe that. Um, but I have a great show for you today. I have another Q&A that I'm bringing you. It was a fantastic one. There were some great questions. Uh, it went a little bit long, but it was really, really packed with just good stuff. And and I was really excited to be on that live. Um, and we talked about all kinds of things. Uh, someone had some money to invest, a little bit, a few thousand dollars, and they wanted the Burr strategy kind of broken down and, and how does that work and, and how should I allocate my money for that? Uh, we talked a lot or I should say I talked a lot about direct mail and running a successful direct mail campaign and, and what that looks like. Um, we also talked about, uh, we talked a little bit about why men seem to dominate real estate. Why are there so many, now I don't mean dominate in terms of they're better, but why are there so many more men in real estate than there are women? And I gave my thoughts on that. Um, and then, you know, just, I, I talked to uh, some questions that some newer investors had about being really nervous about some contracts that they had and, and some inspection stuff that came up and what do they do and how how should they really be evaluating properties? Does the 70% 
rule work still? Does that still make sense in this environment? And so much more. Uh, it was a really action-packed uh, Q&A. So I think you're going to love this one, guys. Get ready to take notes. I give you my latest Facebook Q&A. All right. We are live. I'm set up. It is Wednesday night. It's 7 p.m. Eastern. It's 4 p.m. on the West Coast. And that's the time that we start this every week. And we are going to continue to start every week at this time. So if you're used to coming here, uh, that's great. Mark it in your calendars. Set a reminder. I am here for you, only for you, every Wednesday at this time. So uh, log on, be part of it, join in, and ask questions because this is your opportunity to ask me questions. Uh, no obligation, free of charge. I'm here. I'm at your disposal. Uh, and I will continue to do so as long as there's interest in people who are uh, showing up and asking questions and things like that. Um, also, just as a reminder, in a couple of weeks, uh, my new program will be launching. And I really think if you haven't taken a look at this, if you haven't considered joining the program, you really, really should. It's called the Real Estate Find and Fund Blueprint. That's right. Find and Fund Blueprint. I am going to help you in your business. I'm going to show you exactly the strategies and the tools that I have used in my business for the last decade and more. Uh, and even more specifically, over the last few years, like four or five years, to get over 600 deals in my company. I'm going to show you exactly the marketing strategies. I'm going to show you exactly what I say in my marketing, how I structure it, who I use, all of the vendors and software and everything that I use. I'm going to give you all of the verbiage, like literally give you everything you need to find deals. And I'm also going to talk to you about once that deal comes to you, how do you get it under contract and how do you negotiate that deal so that you're getting great deals. And then in the program, we're also going to spend a lot of time talking about getting your deals funded. How do you get your deals funded? How do you get all your deals funded? What do funding partners, lenders, private lenders, banks, what do they want to hear? What do they want to see? And what does it take for them to go, oh yeah, I want to fund your deals. Because if you can get all the deals you can possibly handle and get them all funded so that you can get them under contract and either flip them, buy them as uh, rentals or wholesale them, whatever you're doing, if you can find them and fund them, the rest of it is so much easier. It's the hard part and the part that people struggle with. And I shouldn't say it's a hard part. It's not really honestly that hard, but you have to know what you're doing. You have to know how to do it. But I truly believe if you can take care of the two major obstacles that people have, finding and funding, you will find success. I do believe that. And I am the person to show you how to do that. The only thing stopping you from getting access to me and getting access to that information and growing your business and escaping the nine to five, taking back control of your finances, taking back control of your time, because there's no business that I would ever want to help you build or be a part of that sucks up all your time and leaves you completely, you know, exhausted. Like the idea is we all leave our nine to fives or those of us who do, we do that so we can have our time back, not so we can create something that it sucks up even more of our time and makes us miserable. So I'm not only going to show you how to find and fund deals. I'm going to show you how to run your business. I'm going to show you how to structure it in a way that gives you your time back. And I have done all these things and I just want to give you that blueprint. So if you go to find and fund blueprint, find and fund 
blueprint.com. You can sign up, you can find out more about it, and you can get involved. And you really, really should. Okay. That being said, we do have some questions that came in. Uh, I peek at these from time to time before I hop on, if I have time to look at them beforehand. Uh, and these are fantastic. There's some great questions here. Uh, the only thing I don't know is how in the world I'm going to do this inside of an hour, but uh, we'll do our best. <clears throat> and if anything doesn't get answered, we'll push it to next week. Uh, but I think I should be able to get through all of them. All right, let's start off. Uh, let's see here. Let's start off. Let me get my notes up so I can see them. Cool. Okay. First question, no particular order here. Uh, I'm looking to invest in my first property somewhere in the Midwest. I have about $15,000 liquid to use for this project. Uh, would you do a flip or a burr? Uh, my long-term goal is to own 1,000 units, but I have to start somewhere. <clears throat> Any other tips or tricks uh, that helped you start out? Okay. This is really important. And I want, this is sort of like the question here, really, the, the, the main question here is, do I do a flip or do I do a burr? Um, for those of you who don't know what a burr is, a burr stands for, it's an acronym, it's B-R-R-R. It stands for buy, renovate, rent, repeat. Okay, so it's 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 a landlord play. It's, it's a long-term rental play. <clears throat> okay, so the real question is, do I flip or do I burr? The fact that there's $15,000 available is great, but that's not the question. That's, that's just information for me as the person answering the question. So the question is, do I flip or do I burr? All right, listen closely because I have answered this type of question a million times and I'm always a little bit confused and surprised by the question and here's why. The question is, if I can strip away all of the extra information, the question is this, should I flip or should I burr? Long-term, I want a bunch of rentals. If long-term, you want a bunch of rentals and the long-term goal is pretty lofty, a thousand units, right? That's a lot. If that's your goal, I say get started now. I hear people all the time say, you know, uh, I want to flip houses. I want to be a house flipper. That's what I'm passionate about. But I'm going to do wholesaling for a year and then I'm going to start flipping. And it's like, wait a minute, why? Why are you, you want this thing, but you're going to go do this thing and then somehow eventually end up over here, right? There are two different paths doing flipping and doing burr strategy or rentals, it's two paths. So why would you go on a path that leads west when ultimately you want to be east or you want to be north or you want to be south? Like, go south. So to answer this question, do a burr because you have the right amount of money. You have money to put, you have money for the down payment. You probably have money for the renovation or a good portion of it. So that when you refi out, you should be able to pay back the loan, get your money back if you're buying it right and go on and do your next one. And then just kind of rinse and repeat and do that. So if it's, you know, if that's me and I want to have a thousand units, I'm not going to waste time flipping houses because that's not really what I want to do. I want rentals. So I'm going to start getting on those rentals as soon as possible. Cause if I have to get a thousand, I've got a lot of work to do. So I say, do the burr, take that 15 grand, use it as your down payment and some of the, the cost of renovation or use it for two down payments Buy two. You're in the Midwest. You're, you're saying, so you could probably with 15,000, you could probably buy two houses uh, for you know, putting $7,000 or $7,500 down on each and get two of them going and borrow the rest of the money and, and rinse and repeat and, and do it twice as fast. So 
I'm definitely going Burr for this question. There's no doubt in my mind. I am not going anywhere near flipping if that's not really what I want to be doing. So do what you want to do. If you know what you want to do, do that. Go toward that right now. Don't do something else arbitrarily and then go back to it. Like do it now. That's my advice. All right. Next question. Uh, Do you have any specific advice for successful direct mail campaigns? (laughs) Boy. Uh, literally I could talk for two hours without taking a breath on this, but let's try to condense it and give you the best bang for your buck here in this amount of time. Direct mail. I was just talking to actually a, a, the, the, a, one of the members of the last uh, find and fund program I did. It was called the um, business fast track back then, but um, same, same, same idea. So this person was in the program uh, and I was speaking to her just, just before I hopped on this call and, and this came up. So there's so many like things, but here's what you have to remember. If anybody tells you they have the direct mail piece that is like the silver bullet, or it's a can't miss, or it's like this, this will make you millions of dollars. They're, they're full of crap. Just take it from someone for, for a handful of years in my business, I was sending out 60 to 75,000 postcards a month, right? I'm not saying nobody sends more than that. They do. There are people sending more than that. But I think we can all agree, you know, 70,000 mail pieces a month for several years is a lot. And so I've experimented a lot. I've seen a lot. I've tried a lot when it comes to direct mail. I have a pretty good handle on what works and what doesn't work. And here's what I'm going to tell you because on this q and A, I'm I'm definitely not here to sell you a lot of fluff or a lot of hype or a lot of BS. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. There, the difference what people try to what people are trying to sell you, uh, either figuratively or literally, when it comes to like direct mail pieces that work, or get tons of you know whatever tons of responses. There's two different. There's there's more than two, but there's two main things that you're talking about when you're talking about direct mail. You're talking about responses and you're talking about deals, right? So you're, the goal is never to simply get responses. So, and the reason I'm saying that is one of the metrics that people will sometimes try to push on, on you or use to, to promote their direct mail piece that they're trying to promote is, they'll say it gets a better response than any other mail piece you'll use. It gets a higher response, I should say, not better. They don't ever use the word better. It gets a higher response rate, right? And the reason why a lot of these direct mail pieces that people try to promote get a better response rate is because they are using language that agitates the person receiving it. So, um, years ago, when I was looking at these kind of mail pieces and considering whether or not I want to use them, and I tried using some of them, by the way, and this is how I know what I'm saying is true, because I, I went down this road and it was like, this, this mail piece will give you the highest response rate you've ever seen. And what happens is you get these mail pieces and usually there's some sort of aggressive language or language that's designed to frighten the person who gets it. For example, the letter might say, or the postcard might say, urgent last warning, right? 
And then somewhere in the body, it'll say, you know, I'm an investor. I want to buy your house. But when, when a person gets something in the mail that says in like red letters, urgent last warning, you're being warned. It's very threatening and it's scary for someone who doesn't necessarily understand what you're trying to say. And so you will get calls from people who are panicked, scared, and or mad because you pissed them off because you sent them something that scared them. So be careful because I, I discovered this in my business about three, four years ago. When I send out direct mail, most people think intuitively the goal is to get your phone to ring, right? Assuming you're putting a phone number on your direct mail piece, you want to get the phone to ring, but that's not true. You, yes, you need the phone to ring in order to talk to someone to maybe potentially buy their house, but the goal isn't simply to make the phone ring. The goal is to make the phone ring with people who are interested in selling their house. In the, the kind of, you know, silly analogy or the silly metaphor, the silly example that I use is if I send you a letter, you, I'm, I'm saying you, I don't know exactly who you are, but assuming you have children or a child and I send you a postcard that says, uh, I have your son or daughter hostage and I've kidnapped them and call me if you ever want to talk to them again you will get a very, very high response rate from parents on a card like that, right? They'll call you for sure. Every parent that gets that letter will call you. It'll be 100% response rate from the parents, okay? And I just say that to tell you that getting a call isn't necessarily a good thing. And what happens in the real estate world is, you know, we'll send something that says, urgent final notice. And then you'll say, I, I want to buy your house, whatever. People will call and they're mad. And they say, how dare you? You know, my mother received this card and it said warning. And she thought something bad was about to happen. And I'm just calling to tell you that's not cool. And don't ever send this again, or I'm calling the cops, right? Like you've just wasted the time of your phone person, your lead intake person on something that is never going to result in a purchase of a house. And so why would you want to how, why would you want to construct a mail piece that only agitates just to get the phone ring? <clears throat> so if you hired me and said, I will pay you $100 for every time my phone rings, well, my goal would just be to make your phone ring at that point. If I'm not you know, a completely ethical person, I just want to make your phone ring. I don't really care what they say when, it call, when they call. And so at some point, you're going to say, okay, time out. I'll give you $100 for every time the phone rings and the person on the other end has a house that they're interested in selling, right? That would change what I would say on the card or the letter. Okay, so I'm taking a lot of time because I think this is really, really important. Don't agitate people because all that's going to do is give you a false positive. It's going to increase your response rate to your mail, but your conversions aren't going to be any better than if you said something else. And, and one example I have of this in my own company is we stopped using agitating language, but what we found was a high percentage of our calls were asking one question. A high percentage of them wanted to know, where did you get my information? And we would tell them and they would say, okay, we're not interested, they'd hang up. But they were calling to find out how we got their information. And so <clears throat> the phone was ringing, but a lot of the calls were just never gonna sell. They weren't interested in selling. And so what we did was we put on the bottom of our postcard, 
that I'm just paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of we obtained your information from public records that's available to the general public. Okay. Simple one line, the bottom of the card, but it dramatically reduced the amount of calls we were getting, but it didn't reduce the amount of deals that we were getting. See? So all we did was stopped wasting our phone people's time with garbage calls so that they could focus only on good calls, right? So we sent, we were able to, um, we were able to send less mail and get the same amount of, of good calls because we weren't wasting time with people who just wanted to know where we got the information. So that's just one example. So one piece of information for you is do not send agitating, scary, or threatening type messages on your, on your mail. The other thing is, again, going back to the conversation I had earlier today, uh, I was telling her that they're really it, the, the perfect mail piece doesn't necessarily exist, right? So if, if, there's a, if, if there's a scale and it's like, you know, the end of the scale is like, this is a can't miss mail piece. And the other end is, this is absolute, you screwed everything up. I would really argue that there is no perfect mail piece. There's no upper end of that scale. It doesn't exist. There's only screwing up and not screwing up. That's the scale. You don't screw up or you do screw up. And then there's various levels of screwing up in between, right? So <clears throat> it, it sounds a little depressing, but I'm just telling you, there's like 10 things you can do wrong, but doing things right is a little bit subjective. And sometimes it depends on your market. And sometimes it depends on um, who you're sending the mail to. And so let's focus for a minute, if we can, just on the negative. What do people do wrong that that hurts their chances to buy houses or completely messes up, you know, their, their ability to speak to homeowners. Because I, I think I've already illustrated that like the perfect wording is not, it's a myth in my opinion. There's no perfect way to word the card. There's only ways to screw it up. So one of the ways that people screw it up is their font is too small. They're just way too small. Uh, when you, when you're buying houses, like especially with equity, Typically, you're buying from older people. Um, and when I say older, I, I don't know, you know, over the age of 60, sometimes, you know, a lot of cases over the age of 70. So you're dealing with older folks. Smaller fonts don't work. Okay. I'm, my eyes are getting bad. I'm getting to the point where, like, you know, to read the, the back of a, you know, uh, aspirin bottle, it's like hard for me to read. So don't make the font super small because people can't read it make it bigger. I don't know the font exactly, but you know, 16, 18, somewhere in there, 20, don't go too small. Don't go lower than like 16. Honestly, I wouldn't go lower than 16 or 14 at the lowest. Um, so that's one thing. The font's too small. The other mistake people make is they're all excited to buy houses and they have all these things they want to tell the, the homeowner, all the benefits of working with them. And they try to cram all the information possible onto one little card and the card starts looking too busy and it's too crowded and it's too confusing. And what does a confused mind say? It says, no. Okay. Think about if you were sending this card to try to get a message across to your grandfather or grandmother or great grandfather, great grandmother, anybody who, you know, who is like 80 years old and older, do, if you were going to send them a message on a postcard, would you send them 15 messages all crammed onto the card and hope that they understood what you wanted? Or would you like give them one or two real, real clear messages if you wanted them to actually understand what you were saying? You'd give them one or two clear messages. So don't try to cram all the benefits of working with you. You just want to get across that you acknowledge they have a house. 
you're interested in buying it. Um, you can say, you know, you, you don't need to make any repairs and I can close whenever you want. Like simple to the point messaging. Don't try to add, you know, we can pay your closing costs. We can, we buy all cash. Like there's a lot of things you can put on there. Pick two or three and put the two or three most important things that you think are the most important things. Put those on the card, get them to call because you want them to call. So when they call, you can have an actual conversation and you can tell them all the benefits of working with you. Don't try to put every single conceivable benefit of working with you on one tiny little card or even one letter. <clears throat> because it's kind of like, if you ever send someone text, I do this all the time. You send someone a text on your phone, not necessarily a seller, just like in your personal life, you send a text and you ask four questions in your text. What happens? The person writing you back inevitably answers one or two of the questions. And then you have to text them back and go, what about this? And what about this? Right? You really need to be clear when you're talking about written messages because people tend to read to a point and then they stop reading when it gets to be too convoluted. So just like when you're sending a text, if you have four questions, send them four texts, right? Ask a question, get an answer, ask a question, get an answer. Because when you ask three or four questions, they almost never all get answered, right? And people just usually aren't that thorough. Your, your mail pieces are the same way. So keep your messages brief, keep them to the point, big fonts. The other thing that people do, I cannot believe people do this, but they do it all the time. They don't use what's called variable data. I'll tell you what variable data is, and I'll tell you why it's important. When you receive mail that says on the, on the front of it, on the cover or on the, on the front side or whatever, when it says resident, how much do you think that person really knows about you? Do you think they really are sending you something or do you think they're sending everybody in the city something? You, you rightfully, hopefully assume that they're sending everybody in the city the same exact thing. They don't know you. They don't know anything about you. It's complete junk mail, right? And typically those get thrown away. If a letter or a postcard says, let's just say it's me, it's Mike, right? If it says, hi, Mike. Okay. Now, potentially this person actually knows who I am. They know something about me because they're using my first name. Okay. Um, also, if it says like Simmons residence, like I, I don't think they know me. That's junk mail too, in my opinion. Although that could have been variable data, but it's still junk mail. I want the cards that I send or the letters that I send says, dear Mike, or hey, Mike, or Mike, comma, right? And then somewhere in the message, you want to reference their uh, street address for the house that you're trying to potentially buy. So it might say, dear Mike, I'm an investor in your local area. I buy houses for cash. I close quickly and I don't require repairs. Uh, please give me a call at this number to discuss your property at 147 Elm Street, for example. Okay. Now they've used my name. They've told me who they are. They've clearly articulated what they want, why they're sending me a letter, and they're naming the specific house that I own that they're interested in. Okay. Now I still probably as a rational person realize they don't probably know me, but it feels more individual. It feels more personal and more personalized and it gets more response. So variable data is when you get the person's name and the name of the property or any other information and you insert that into the card so that every card or letter is different. 
The first one will say, dear Mike. The next one will say, dear Sally. The next one will say, dear Ralph. The next one will say, dear Lisa, right? It's just, it's it's a whoever it's going to, their name is on the card. It's not just 10,000 cards that are printed identically. There are 10,000 cards that are, that are personalized to the person getting it. That's variable data. That's very, very important. And I think people, but it's also a little bit more expensive. It's cheaper to just put, dear resident, I want to buy your house. Give me a call, right? There's no variable data. So every card or every letter can be sent exactly the same. And that's a mistake because dear resident means please, it's screaming, please throw me in the garbage. I I have nothing to do with anything you care about. And so don't, don't be the person sending that mail piece. Um, Also, when you're sending out the mail piece, just like I said, don't have any aggravating um, uh, like language. Also don't use aggravating, aggravating visuals. Don't use fonts that are overly fancy. Like, in other words, don't even use fancy, like Arial, Helvetica, Times Roman, whatever, something super, super simple and easy to read. Do not use some sort of a fancy cursive font. It's totally, wait, you might as well burn your money. It's not going to work. The people receiving the card, like I said, are typically older. They might be having a hard enough time reading it anyway. And they're standing over the garbage. And you said something with all kinds of flowery, crazy font. They're going to throw it away. Like I would throw it away. Don't use crazy, like, you know, um, colors that are just like a lot to deal with and a lot of weird stripes going in different directions. Like, don't do that. Make it simple. Make it clear. Um, white cards with black font, yellow cards with black font. Um, you know, those are, those are really, really good and kind of timeless and they work. People use yellow and black or black and yellow. I should say people do it because it works. So don't be afraid of that, but don't get overly creative with the color of your card because the more, obnoxious it is to the person who's receiving it again, who's probably over the age of 60, probably over the age of 70. In a lot of cases, you just don't want it to be so in their face that they just get distracted by it and throw it away. Cause it just looks like junk. Right. And also you start using crazy colors and fonts and it looks a little bit amateurish and in it and, or immature, I should say, and the, and it gets thrown away. That being said, another mistake people made make is they try to look super corporate, like super big time, right? They'll name their companies like Home Buyer USA or something, you know, completely like obscure and grandiose. And it sounds big. People do not want to sell their house to huge corporations. That doesn't sound awesome to most people. Most people would much rather sell their house to a person. And so, my website is mikebuyshousesforcash.com. Not homebuyer USA buys all houses. Like that's that's just the wrong message. And believe me, I've tried this. I know dozens and dozens and dozens of investors who have done both. And everybody comes back to personal is better. Smaller is better. Do not try to represent yourself as some humongous multinational company. You're much better off to be John from Idaho. You're much better off to be that, okay? So don't try to build yourself into something else. People feel much more um, trusting and, and they warm up faster to an individual than they do a company. So don't, don't try to get overly um, huge. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. That's a lot of tips for direct mail. Uh, I think if you follow that advice, you'll have a lot of success. Okay, next question. 
um, from uh, Matthew. Let's see, what event can I go to to hear you talk for about an hour? <laughs> That's funny. Funny, Matthew. You may already know, but I'll say it. I am going to be at Flip Hacking Live. It's in Orlando. It's from October 14th to October 16th. Uh, like I said, it's happening next month. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be speaking. I'm going to be hanging out for a couple of days. We can chat in between, you know, on breaks, in between presentations, at, at, at lunch, at dinner. Like, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be speaking. And, and frankly, the presentation I'm going to give, I think, is really, really going to be effective for people who are trying to get out of the muck and figure things out. I'm going to talk about kind of giving people a blueprint for the first six months of their business. So if that's something interesting to you, go to uh, bestrealestateevent.com. That's bestrealestateevent.com. Grab your tickets now because they were, they're going to go up in price. And so if you get them now, I believe they're going up in price tomorrow. So if you want to do it, seriously, go there tonight because tomorrow they'll be more expensive. And guess what? In a few weeks or like a week and a half, they'll be even more expensive because the price goes up as we get closer. So uh, bestrealestateevent.com and grab your tickets. You will be happy you did. It's going to be unbelievable. Great, great event. And not just because I'm going to be there. I'm telling you, uh, I've been to a lot of events and most of them give vague sort of useless information. This is not that. This is giving you the playbook. People are going to go up there and open up the playbook and show you exactly what they're doing in their business. They're going to give you everything you need to implement it in your business. It's going to be a blast and it's going to be really, really informative. So you should check that out if you haven't. Okay. Next question. Do you have some thoughts on why so many real estate investors are men? Well, that's interesting. I've never been asked that. Is this a difficult field for women to break into? Um, I'll answer the second one first, the second part of the question, because it's the easier part. No, this is not a difficult field for women to break into. It, it really, there should be absolutely no, no difference other than if you're dealing, you know, like sometimes when you're in a flip situation, and I'm always saying this because I have uh, an assistant who's a woman who's helped me with flips and, and working with contractors. And I have a daughter who also uh, flips properties. And so I've kind of been able to see the industry, part of the industry through their lenses. And I do think there are people in our industry, and I don't want to pick on any one group, but here I go. I guess I'm going to do it. Um, contractors. Contractors sometimes are so used to dealing with men and the way that men interact and talk that I think sometimes it takes a minute for them to take women seriously uh, when, they're, when they're directing them. Uh, and again, I... It, I guess we could go into the psychology of why, but it really doesn't matter. But the reality is you have to, if you're a woman in this industry and you're dealing with contractors specifically, because that's the area where I've seen the most evidence that there's any sort of, you know, friction or any sort of like difficulties, you have to stand your ground. You, you, you must be the one who's paying them. So in other words, when my assistant works with contractors, I don't have her direct them, but I pay them because a lot of contractors, and again, I'm sort of stereotyping and throwing them into one group, but whatever, it, just saying it the way I see it. Um, the person who pays them is a person that they listen to and respect usually. And so when I was working with my daughter on her first couple flips, I insisted that she pay the contractors because I know if she's the one handing them the check and they know that they have to go to her for the money, 
I know that they're going to listen to her because that's where they're getting paid from. But if I'm paying them, they're going to kind of always assume I'm in charge. And so they're going to try to circumvent the other people, the women that are that working with them and, and go straight to me. So, um, but if you're a woman in this industry, I, I don't think, I don't, I really hate when people use excuses for why they can't do things. So, and I'm not saying this person is using an excuse. I think it's just a legitimate question, but don't think of yourself as a woman in real estate. Think of yourself as a real estate investor and act like a real estate investor and act like you belong there because you do. And don't let anybody who has some preconceived, you know, idea or they have some, you know, what they're used to, like, screw that. Like they're there for you. And if they can't figure that out and they can't get on board, do not convince them, move on, go to the other contractor who does get it and who just wants to go in, do a good job and get paid. Like that's who you want to work with. And so if I'm a work woman working in this industry, I, you know, I, I just say, you know, just do it. Like, just, just do it. Like, don't, don't let that hold you back or make you second guess yourself. Just do it. And if somebody can't wrap their brain around working with you, don't work with them. Cause there's tons of people who will work with you who can wrap their brains around it and work with them. Like you need to flush people who just don't get it and who are just thick headed. Um, but why do I think so many men are in real estate? I don't know. I, I it's probably society, you know, just kind of, that was in, in the past. It's probably just a more of a, um, of an industry that men gravitated toward or were encouraged to go into or, maybe had somebody, you know, in their family who was in real estate and or like a father and a son kind of a thing. Like it's probably just honestly old fashioned thinking that sort of were just still flushing out the remnants of it and the remaining, you know, the remainders of that. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that there's any great reason. Like why are there more men that are in construction? I don't know. It's just a job that men typically gravitate toward, and maybe women are discouraged to go into at some level. Maybe I don't know. I'm not sure. There's probably a lot of psychology here that I should know. Uh, but I have two daughters, so I, I don't really, you know, I don't really think about what can they do as women. What what industries or what jobs can they do as a woman? Like I, I don't think that way as their dad. I think they can do anything. And so I don't have that mindset or that mentality that it's like, there's these jobs and these jobs and men do and women do. I think everybody should do what they want to do. And I think if you show, I really do believe that if you don't, don't play a victim ever, don't assume that somebody isn't going to play well with you because you're a woman. And I think if you do that and, and you're competent, right? I mean, learn your craft. Don't don't go in and expect anybody to treat you any differently, good or bad, right? You should not expect to be treated worse. You shouldn't expect to be treated differently either. Go in and be competent because I think at the end of the day, most people respect competence and they respect someone who's skilled. So become skilled in what you do. Go do it. The people who you should want in your life and around you and working with you will see that you're competent and that you're good at what you do. And the ones that can't, flush them. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'm feeling hesitant about a cash deal that I'm under contract for. It's been extremely difficult to work with a seller and there are some items on the inspection that are concerning. I was supposed to pay the EMD yesterday, uh, but I am not even getting a call back from the title company. Is it too late to back out? I'm just having fear of doing my first deal or is it actual cause for concern? Um, you might be just having a little bit of fear. It sounds like uh, the seller's making it difficult. So I don't know if this is a wholesale situation or if this person's buying it to flip. 
I can't, I, I'm assuming you're buying it to flip only because you said that there's items on the inspection that are concerning because most wholesalers are not doing inspections before they get it under contract. And so going under the assumption, this is a flip, which doesn't make that big of a difference in my answer, but I'm just trying to sort out what, what the facts are here. Um, uh, yeah. Getting a hold of the title company is strange. If they're not calling you back, that's a big problem. It sounds like a crappy title company, but if it's local to you, I would show up at the title company and I would, I would not let them not call me back. Like, I would show up. I, that's just me, but I would show up and go, "Hey, who's where is so and so?" Because I've left messages for this person, and they're not calling me back. And I have a house under contract. Like, what's going on? Do I need to change uh, title companies? And maybe that's not an option for you. But uh, if if it's not, and if you're using, if the seller is using a realtor, which again, I'm I'm assuming they're not because you're having trouble getting a hold of seller. So it sounds like you're working directly with them, which means they probably don't have a preference on the title company. So I would leverage telling the title company, we're just going to move on to somebody else if they don't pick up the phone, like every time you call. Um, but I, I, without knowing the inspection uh, items that are concerning, it's difficult to say if you should bail on this or not. If you haven't given the EMD, it's not too late, frankly. I mean, if you haven't given the EMD yet, you can back out because typically EMD is, re is uh, required within the first 24 or 48 hours. If it's that soon, since you've had you know, this thing under contract, then you can absolutely bail. Now, if for some reason you've owed this EMD for a couple of weeks or something, and in the meantime, you've done the, in, the inspection, um, I'm assuming that if you bought this from the seller, you have some sort of an, if you're doing an inspection, I assume you have an inspection clause that says, if you find items on the inspection that are concerning to you, you can get out. Okay. So it sounds to me with the information I have available to me, yes, you can get out of the deal. You can back out. Okay. But you might just be hitting the panic button. I don't know you and I don't know the items on the inspection list. It's possible you are just panicking and you know, you're just having fear. Like you said, it's fear. It's possible that your, your concerns are legitimate and there's like horrible things on the inspection and it's just maybe not a good deal. Maybe it was thin to begin with. I don't know. I would say, be careful of backing out. If you think it might be fear, there's a decent chance that it is just fear. Run your numbers, run your numbers with the inspection issues that you found, add those in as a, as something that you might have to take care of, you know, not knowing your agreement with the seller. But if you had to handle those inspection items, let's say you had to deal with them, could you still make money? And if the answer is yes, if it's still a great deal, close the deal, like go to the title company and say, I'm not getting my phone calls answered. I need to talk to somebody now. I need information. Let's go. I'm trying to buy a house and you're holding it up. And that's not your job to hold this up. And if they have anything other than, I'm sorry, I apologize. Yes, sir. I'll get right on it. Or yes, ma'am. Then move, go to a different title company because they're commodities. Honestly, title companies, in my opinion, it, there's, it's very hard for them to be special, right? The only way they're special that I, I, the title companies I deal with, the way they become special to me is they perform. They pick up the phone when I call or when my team calls and they perform. And other than that, anybody can do the job. Any title company can do that job. So move on, go to somebody who's willing to do that and have good customer service because customer service at the end of the day, title companies, to me, that's the only thing they have to offer different from any other title company. They're all doing title search. They all provide title insurance. Like they all have the same function. It's just some of them treat their, their clients well and some of them don't. So go to the ones that do, okay? Um, yeah, 
If you haven't paid the EMD, by the way, and it was due yesterday, you might already be in breach of contract and maybe the seller wants to back out from you. I don't know. But you got to get a hold of the seller. You got to get a hold of the title company. Talk to the seller about the items on the inspection. Talk to the title company. Find out what their deal is. And just like, go go do it. Like, I, I don't like, I hate it when people use somebody else's lack of doing their job as the reason why they're not doing theirs. So don't be that person. Go to the title company, drive to the seller if you have to, like get in front of people and get them on board, get them moving forward. You just have to do it, right? This is your deal. It's your company. It's your potential profit. Don't let somebody not calling you back, kill it. You have to take the bull by the horns. Um, that's my advice. A little rough, but that, that's just, that's what I would tell anybody that I care about. Okay. Next question. I'm a newbie, uh, newbie, sorry. I'm a newbie, but I have a, been a contractor for 17 years and I'm trying to get into investing. I'm getting a lot of deals sent to me, but they are very rarely meeting the standard flipping formula, 70% criteria. Am I overthinking this rule? Yes, you're overthinking the rule. I don't know where you're located, but if you're in a very, very, very hot competitive market like California, for example, you know, Southern California, the 70% rule is probably not going to work. House prices are just way too high right now. 70% rule will not work. In my opinion, the 70% rule is sort of like training wheels on a bicycle for a kid. You put them on at first just so the kid doesn't fall and bust their head. But once they sort of get it, at some point, the training wheels come off and they learn to ride, okay? The 70% rule is the training wheels of real estate evaluation, in my opinion. It was not intended, nor should it be used as a golden rule forever. It's just there to make the calculation very, very simple and painless until you get enough experience and enough knowledge to create a formula that's a little bit more specific to you, to your business model, to your region, to your house preferences. Like there's a lot of things that go into it. And the 70% rule, it's a general target. It's, it's, and, and in this environment, in this market that we're in with house prices so high, I would say a lot of people who think the 70% rule is the right way to go, they're not getting deals, just like you're not getting deals. Because you're, you're, um, you're using a, by the way, this calculation, the 70% rule, people were talking about that 10 years ago too, right? 10 years ago, house prices were in the tank. If the 70% rule worked then, how can it work now? There's no adjustment for the market, right? So it's not, it's not a good, it's not a good criteria to use as a complete, like, it's not Bible. It's not absolute, right? It's, general. And I think it has to be adjusted when you're in a crazy high uh, inflated, you know, property values like we have now. So don't use 70% rule. If it's not, if you're not getting deals, you got to adjust, right? You got to do something. Okay. Next question. Let's see how we doing on time. Pretty good. Uh, maybe I'll go through one, one more and I'll save the rest for next week. Cause I am getting along with on some of these. Okay. Next question. How long did it take you to finally be able to simply manage your business and not have to do any of the work inside of it? Well, how long it took me is irrelevant because it, the better question is how long can it take or should it take, or like, how long should I expect it to take? It took me longer than it should because I was too hard-headed to get help for a number of years. And so I started in 08 and I really didn't start building my team until 2015, right? So that's like, what, seven years before I started like 
building a team that was doing things so I didn't have to be in my business all day long. That's too long. I, you know, looking back, if I could go back and redo it, that I would have never been seven years into it. I, I was just seven years into it because I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I wasn't asking for help. I was being hardheaded and I was being stubborn and thinking I could just figure it out. But the minute, the minute I put myself in an environment where there were people who were doing significantly better than me and I was able to ask them questions, almost immediately, I started building a business that could run without me or could run in large part without me and then eventually run completely without me. So I think it's, I, I think it's safe to say, depending on how aggressive a person is and how hard they're working to build their business and how much time they're spending. I mean, I think you could easily within a year build a business that gives you a little bit of your time back. I, I think there is a period of time where you just have to kind of be in it and working and, and kind of figuring out. Maybe you could do it in six months if you're really aggressive and going after it uh, and you're getting deals and, you, and depending on what you're doing, right? So if you're doing buy and holds and you're buying one every couple of months, like it's going to take time, right? But if you're flipping and you're doing one or two, like a month, you could start building a team in the first 90 days, right? If you're doing flipping, let's say, and you're only able to find one deal every two or three months, it might take a year. But ultimately somewhere between you know, six months and 18 months, I think you should be building out a team that gives you some of your time back and ultimately gives you a lot of free time so that you don't have to be in your business every single day. It took me way too long, but don't do what I did. I, I didn't ask for help. Now I immediately go for help. When I know I, there's something I don't know or something I want to do, I don't just figure it out, like bouncing around like a knucklehead, I go and look for the person who's crushing it and doing exactly what I want to be able to do. And I get advice from them or, you know, I hire them to, to teach me. So that's what I would say. I mean, find a coach, find a mentor, join a mastermind, join my program, right? Find and fund blueprint.com, figure it out who you trust, who you believe can help you go to them, ask for their advice. But then the number one thing to remember is when you go to someone who you believe can help you and you believe have the credentials and you think has the experience and the, and the knowledge that you need, when they tell you what you should do, go do it. Don't make excuses. Don't put it off. Don't argue with them about it. it won't work. Go and do it. That's what I did. And when I did that, my business blew up. I started building a team. And next thing you know, I didn't have to be there doing every single thing because there was some, there were folks working on my team that, that were able to help me do that. So um, you can do it very, very quickly. It does not have to take you the seven years that it took me. So, all right, I'm going to call it uh, end of tonight. We're going to answer the rest of the questions that we had next week. One more time, guys, find and fund blueprint.com. Go check it out. It's my new program. It's starting soon. We will limit the amount of people that are going to be in it so that it can be fairly intimate and we can really help people on a real level. So go grab your spot now before it's too late, before it starts. I don't know if I'm going to do another one this year. So this may be your last chance to actually change things for the better in your business. Go do it. I want to see you inside. But until next week, 7 p.m. Uh, Eastern time, 4 p.m. Pacific, I'll be back here answering your questions. I'll see you then. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.